0: Everybody, to another edition of The Groundsman. Joining me on the rakes this morning, as always, the great and good Roger Mitchell and the greater and better Giles Morgan. <laughs> Gentlemen, morning. Good morning. Good morning.
1: <laughs> How are you, fellas? I'm well, actually, I'm not so, not so great. We've gone back down into uh, the red category. Uh, so just the spring is, is blooming here in Italy, in the north of Italy. Uh, on the lake uh, we are stuck in the house as, as if it was a year ago and you know we've got this whole issue about AstraZeneca not being accepted here and um, don't want to go into all of that but it's all a little bit depressing uh, as we speak Grant.
0: Oh, what a pain, how about you Josh? Are you coming out of lockdown yet in London?
2: Um, well I think things are at least we have a timetable. No, I'm I'm in a particularly I'm in fine good form, as you can see, as I lean on my rake. I have a new Tupperware box, and uh, it's got room for extra <laughs> cheese and pickle sandwiches, and a packet of crisp and a penguin biscuit. So, I think my lunch is going to look significantly better than yours. <laughs> it's the little victories in it's, life that are so important. It's so <laughs> yeah, it's always the little victories. Um, well, look, gentlemen,
0: why, why, why don't we uh, why don't we unpack Charles's little box and <laughs> and get into it and see what uh, what's on the agenda for today? Charles, um, what, what have you? What's on your mind this week?
2: Well, I'm, there's sort of two or three things that have been bubbling along for a while, um, which we've got to dive into. There's been the whole British cycling and the doping of of Richard Freeman, which I think is a a huge story um, because of where cycling has been tainted in the past, and then great great. Uh, pains and efforts to try and clean up the sport, and this will be a real setback. CVC announcing their enormous investment within Six Nations Rugby is, is colossal, particularly as I find the British media, the British rugby media, still absolutely sort of anchored down by their perplexion of how is the sport going to make money and this fiendish uh, thing called OTT and television, which they seem to have a sort of very pure view of what um, free-to-air means. And I wonder what century sometimes many of them are living in. And then there's just lots and lots of other good stuff. It feels like Formula One is um, coming coming back in a, in a major way, um, which should be very edifying for those sports who've taken private equity money um, and then finally, just sort of talking about the future. I'm just really interested. It feels it's March, obviously, and in the Northern Hemisphere, that means the spring. And despite COVID, it feels that there are new shoots um, emerging everywhere and a positivity, which I hope will continue. Marvellous. Well,
0: listen, I think the first one of those to get into, because it's something that we've talked about at great length and something that Roger really um, has been banging on about, as he does, <laughs> for a long time and that's the and that's the the CVC in rugby um, you know uh, Raj, this is something that you put on our radar a long time ago and we've kind of watched this and it's kind of this has all happened in conjunction with the show as as the shows move forward this is the story has moved forward what, what did you make of the of the CVC news
1: well it's it's just uh, the one of the latest of their uh, strategic investments they're placing their tanks on the lawn of a sport uh, to control it, to surround it, and, and ultimately to get it into better shape. Um, I actually had the great pleasure this week of hearing from some CVC people saying they follow the show and they they like the tone of how we place private equity within the, the, the change management of, of the sports industry. You know, what's the problem? And then what's the solution? The problem for rugby these days is they're, they're simple. Huh? This isn't um, wonderful insight broadcasters, all different broadcasters taking a wee bit of the story, uh, no joined-up storytelling. Um, if you remember our our session in the Reform Club, Steve Martin used that phrase exactly. Uh, so, you know, kudos to him. Uh, I, I see this as an opportunity uh, more than... Giles is right. There's some people that are kind of like tut-tutting and, and referring to what happened in cricket when it went behind a paywall and it lost a generation and never recovered... I'd like to think that this is more bringing rugby into a future that that means that there is one story. I think all of this is going to end up in a a thematic channel, a rugby channel that that has all the various properties. Once you start doing that, you're in the direct-to-consumer game, which takes us into the whole world of um, Giles' first-party data. And the paywall, you know, oh goodness, we're taking rugby behind a paywall. It will kill it for future generations. What I say about about that is that we aren't in the two thousand anymore. Younger generations, which the ones any sport badly needs if it wants to get the, the average age demographic down, they don't live on free tier. They live on the other platforms. And I believe and I hope and I'm sure that CVC-inspired new management will come up with some kind of direct-to-consumer play with the appropriate um, funnel management around the platforms, around their own uh, owned and operated platforms, and I'm sure they will also do something for the free to air highlights package. But in the world of Disney Plus. We're in the world of even there, Disney Plus, ESPN Plus, um, Hulu. They they're all they're all thematic channels sold directly by the content creator Disney to uh, an audience that they own completely. I believe rugby and the vision of CVC has been such that they're, they're going to be the first sport
0: that goes down that road. Well, let's talk about rugby for a bit, because um, there'll be people watching this, uh, or rather listening to this, who, who don't really understand the backstory of rugby and, and why this is such a problematic thing for them. Because, I mean, the first thing that I guess to understand is that rugby was still an amateur game about a week ago you know it, it, it came very yeah. very late to the professional um ranks and that is kind of steeped in its tradition and where it came from and the fact that it was a gentleman's game and you know in england uh particularly um you know a a, a, a public school game and and the kind of taint of professionalism about rugby was always something that was looked upon with disdain um you know eventually they it became a professional sport and a very professional sport uh and and the rise of rugby since then has been extraordinary. So, Charles, why is it, do you think, that the, the the kind of corridors of rugby power seem to have such a difficult time changing with the times? Because they can look back at just about every other major sport on the planet, see the road they're on now, and understand perfectly well where it's going. And you would think that they would be able to to move ahead, see the see the future, and move towards it, rather than seemingly be blindsided by change and and upset by the the kind of arrival of those pesky Americans with all their money.
2: (laughs) Well, the the trouble that many sports have, rugby as much as any, but golf has the same challenges. So does tennis. So does many, many sports. It's, It's all to do with their history and when they were founded. And therefore, you create a hierarchy of the history and the past, which means that governance, and that that is a, a loosely termed phrase in sport, <laughs> um, means that you get factions. And those factions don't always agree, particularly if Blazers are arm wrestling with Blazers in the club lounge at one o'clock in the morning. It's not all friendship. What's ironic about rugby? It's not the size of the sport. I mean, it's a dynamic, fast-paced game. And it's exciting. And that's where sevens, which is the, I still believe is the great... Um, potential um, uh, door opener for the sport because it's 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 so much faster and easier to understand and it's been left rather on the shelf, just relying on Olympics to, to sort of shore it up. The strength of rugby commercially is the audience. And that actually goes back to its history of the public school of the old colonial past of a very, very rich traditional demographic, which is, of course, very attractive to many brands because it's about an affluent demographic. So its strength is also its weakness, because the strength is it does attract tradition and a certain type. The weakness is it's mired in its past, which is preventing it going as fast as it can into the future in the way it needs to. If you take sevens, it was blocked by many of the home unions to grow much more because they were worried about the threat to the six nations. Yet here was a sport that was being included into the Olympic Games. And then what's interesting again for me about all of this is we get very excited about CBC and I'm I'm a bull on it. I'm these are smart guys and I'm pleased to see the investments they're making. But they're not necessarily going to be able to invest in the whole sport. And there are runners and riders like Silver Lake being touted looking at the southern hemisphere. And if we're not careful or if the sport is not careful, you're going to be have new factions which are not um, divided or created by the um, the sort of club lounge of various unions is going to be the boardrooms of different investors who are after all looking for a return on their investment and My greatest hope for rugby union is as these smart um, institutions come in to invest in the sport, be it Silver Lake, be it CBC, be it others, and there will be is that they can come together for the good of the sport to to to, to create that funnel that that uh, Roger alludes to. Otherwise, you're going to have yet more factions, which may not be decided by the club tie, but they'll still be factions. But that you know your
0: your point reinforces mine, right? Because there's there's nothing more rooted in tradition and class and all the things that you discovered there than cricket. And cricket had exactly the same issues with 2020, um, you know, initially with one day internationals and, and everything but the five day game. And it's taken them a long time to finally embrace that, but embrace it they've, they've had to. I don't think it was necessarily through choice. But obviously the success of T20 and the Big Bash and all the shorter form cricket should be such a roadmap for the, for the power brokers in
2: rugby to say, well, this is where it's going. So why, why do we fight this for so long and so hard? Well, I think if you look at the history of cricket, one of the things that was most interesting is for many, many years, MCC, the preeminent club, obviously used to be the, the reflection of the whole global game until very recently, um, the ICC moved from London to Dubai And they did that, obviously there was a tax break and it made more sense probably geographically. But with that, you started to see a massive shift towards the subcontinent in terms of power and influence Mm -hmm. of the game. And the game really for the last 15, 20 years has been governed much more by Indian influence than by traditional public school, old school British influence. And that's changed because the value of cricket is now seen very much as the subcontinent, the power of India, the power of Pakistan, and the huge populations that those two countries have, and Bangladesh as well. So it's kind of released the grip of the traditional um, British overlord circa 1920. And so the game somehow released itself. Now, I would also argue that the, the game is now gripped in a new colonial master, which is the Indian subcontinent, which right. isn't entirely yeah. good for the game either. But it did shift in a way that rugby and cricket were bedfellows that kind of were absolutely in tandem in terms of the schools they were played at historically and the sort of demographic in, in England in particular they were played in. That shifted. And then, of course, with IPL... Uh, really changing the game, driven through the Indian market. That absolutely, although that was in fact invented by, by by the English, interestingly, but they didn't monetize it. IPL went in very hard and then begat Big Bash and all the rest of it. And we've seen a sport really advancing fast, albeit with new factions and new politics. So Rog, what should the new money brokers of rugby be
0: thinking? How should they be looking at this challenge? And what's the best way for them to do what's necessary to bring Rugby into this age that you better than anybody have just been describing for years.
1: Well, you know, it's, it's what I think I said before. I think that is their game plan. Nobody really knows. Uh, Giles is correct that you know um, them not controlling the Southern Hemisphere fully uh, is going to be an issue, and Pro Fourteen and where South Africa sits is is another is another variable in all of this. But basically, you know. Again, and I sound awful saying this, but, you know, once you start just putting it in terms of market forces and follow the money, it becomes really clear. This is a very affluent audience. It's a white, middle-aged audience, mainly male. They could be monetized much better if you put it behind a paywall. And that will happen. I am sure that will happen. You you do need to have entry point sport uh, like the sevens that Giles is talking about and bring rugby into the kind of formats that the younger audiences can consume. Now, the, the I'll give you, if I may, another example of what I'm talking about here, because I'm sure a lot of people don't get this. You know, they'd say, well, what's wrong with where we are today? Everything's lovely. We had a wonderful um, TV ratings on BBC or ITV, whatever it was. What's wrong with the status quo? The the problem is sport audiences are getting really, really old. We've said this a dozen times. They're getting near 60. So uh, you've got to fill that funnel from the bottom. And, and, you know, one of the underreported stories this week, I think that links to everything we're talking about, is um, the overtime elite league for high school players of basketball, Overtime is a media company. They have no rights. It's fan-generated content around the game, snackable, very, very short. And they have accumulated an audience of around 45 million on their various platforms. So they have got that elusive younger audience. They own it. They have it. So now they're basically saying, look, we're going to create... A league ourselves. We're going to create an event. We're going to own IP ourselves. And their pitch is to high school players that uh, basically says, we're going to pay you a salary uh, to play in this league. It's good money. Uh, They'll also get equity in overtime, which is an interesting development. And uh, here's the really nice thing. If they don't make it to the NBA, they will have their tuition for college paid for them. So, so basically, they are saying, we've already got the audience, we can create our own league, we fit it into the existing pathway, and we're going to create an, an enormously strong property. A little bit like the XFL that we mentioned the, the, the last time, you know, And and I just still don't believe that the sport industry understands what's happening at the bottom end that the younger ones do not live on free-to-air television. We need to go and market to them where they live. They live on places like Overtime. They live in places like Fortnite. You know, there's a new word that's coming that's called the metaverse, which is the whole digital world of epic games and avatars and digital goods and digital assets that you buy. Sometimes I think the traditional sports industry looks at this area and says, yeah, 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 that's the kids. And and this killer phrase, and it's yours, Grant, they're transient, they will grow out of it and they will eventually come back to where we are. I don't think they will grow out of it, Grant. I think sport and rugby will, I think, do this needs to go where these people are currently living and it's on places like Overtime and say to them, do you fancy this sport event? Do you like my league? Do you like how I promote it? Do you like how I tell the story? Do you like the celebrities I'm creating? And, and, and you know, Overtime, you know, is financed by Andreessen, a huge VC, Kevin Duran, Carmelo Anthony as, as investors. You know, um, I was seeing this the other day on Twitter Silicon Valley is dominating the entertainment and content industry. That is without doubt. These people are investing in areas that they think are the future. Look where they're investing, you know, and then you see the future. We need to start thinking more and more about new formats, as Giles says, maybe it's sevens, and new audiences and where they live.
2: And what's so interesting... Sorry. Go ahead, Josh. Oh, sorry. I nearly choked up on my uh, on my penguin biscuit. I was so excited there. <laughs> <laughs> What's so exciting for me about what Roger's just said, though, is this is where then the intrinsic new value of the industry comes from. With all of this new type of engagement, a lot of it digital, so as I always bang on about, so the information and the behavior and the basic intelligence of the fan is garnered. And that means you've got a real knowledge of the consumer, which then can be sold on back into media, back to investors and back to sponsors. And this is the new virtual circle that sport has to embrace. So when Roger talks about new formats, new innovation, exciting new ways to consume, not only is that because that's better engagement but if you get it right you attract more in and by attracting more in you really crank up the engine and that's where the sport or sports need to go and that's going to be the battleground over the next nine years
0: well the the interesting thing for me about this overtime phenomenon roger and i think i think this is super important i really do it is because you know what we have here traditionally the, the 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 profits from sport have gone to those that run the game, right? And yes, indeed. We, we keep reading about these you know, astronomical salaries that sportsmen are getting paid, blah, 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 blah. But we all know that the clubs are not paying those unless they, they... They're not guaranteed to make a lot more than that, but they have a really good sense that they will make a lot more of that out of advertising, out of selling that fan data, out of monetizing all that information they find out about the fans. But as the consumption of content becomes more of a young man's game. It kind of collides with the fact that the sports themselves are obviously young men's games and, and young women's games. Yeah. Um, it's the youth that populate the team jerseys on just about every team in every sport in the world. And so you now offer them a chance to be paid straight out of high school, for example, you know, serious money maybe not NBA money, but serious money. And and I think that is perhaps the the single biggest change, Roger, is that you don't have to make it to the NBA now potentially to have a big career and a potentially very lucrative career playing the sport that you loved. You know, it always used to be that all these kids that played high school football, played high school basketball, if they didn't make it to the show, that was it. You know, they were all going to go and do something with their lives that would have left them with that kind of what could have been feeling. Let, let let
1: me go a little bit more specific and hard-hitting than that uh, on exactly that theme. The NCAA have made a shitload of money. That's exactly where I was oh, going with this. Right, okay. So what the theme is here is that the athletes are now realizing because tech allows you to reach your consumer, your fan directly. You don't need to go through the whole value system of distribution and broadcasters and teams and leagues and confederations and everything. You can touch your athlete immediately now and everybody's saying, what is the guy in the middle adding And the guy in the middle in this case is the NCAA. Uh, I'm not saying they're going to disappear because of the overtime elite league, but it's exactly what you're saying, Grant. Um, And it's the same. We touched on this on another uh, groundsman. We talked about the IOC and this trickle down from the very top to sports. Um, Another thing caught my eye this uh, this week, Um, British skiing. Uh, that is in uh, quotes a funding scandal because it asks its skiers to pay 34 grand a year um, and then obviously pays all the executives that are around British skiing quite chunky salaries um, for doing what? So uh, uh, British skiing gets its money from UK Sport I think that gets its money in this case about 11 million pounds from uh, Olympic funding. And the poor athlete is saying, and you're asking me to to compete. That, that's going to end, that is going to end if if sports and governing bodies do not treat their athletes better, you will see more examples of the swimming league of the lacrosse people of the overtime elite league and I just still look around and see the great in the grid and their, you know, in non-exec positions and all these governing bodies talking blah 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 and I get I guarantee you 9 out of 10 of them have got no idea
2: who over over time is. Roger, what's very interesting about what you've just said then? I saw that story, um, and once again, it comes down to the sort of willful neglect and um, governance issues that sport always seems to attract. But actually looking after the athletes and where the real value is, I think on our next show after this, on the big interview, we have Sam Renouf of a professional triathlon organisation coming in. And there is a sport that has ensured that the top athletes are protected by creating an organization that is for them. And I can't wait to hear their business model because it's exactly that. If you don't look after your your athletes, who are your stars, if they, they are your product, you run the risk as we're seeing in other sports of splintering, golf has always flirted with this for years and years, it hasn't happened. Um, But this is where sports need to go. You have to protect those athletes and make sure that they are able to earn. And by the way, talking of young men and young women's sport, how good was it to see Lee Westwood twice in the almost in the winner's circle? I mean, one of our heroes from the show, but now there's a man, there's a man. The
1: thing that struck me is that he looks happy. He looks to be comfortable with the person he's sharing his life with uh, he's looking well. Um, he's playing well. We should never forget that the importance for uh, certainly a single athlete sport like golf or tennis, the importance of of having the proper people around you and the, and, and ideally the proper partner beside you. Uh, I I didn't know his story with his with his caddy. I don't know about the the, the previous marriage he was in. Somebody told me it's to a, a golfer's um, uh, uh, sister. All I could see is he looked great. I saw, I, f- I could feel the energy coming off him. And, you know, and then he did that wonderful interview. He said, like, I, I, from the first tee on, on on Sunday, I wasn't striking it well, but I, I got through it. And I, 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 you said it yourself,
0: he's becoming a national treasure. He, he's a really good bloke. Yeah, he is a good bloke. And it was, it was lovely to see. I have to say, there were a couple of times where I, I thought I saw him, kind of look at the camera and then plaster that smile on his face to mask the tension. It looked, it, cause it was getting very, very tense there towards the end, but it, he did. He looked like he was having a great time and very relaxed and, you know, which we know he can't have been because there is no way to be relaxed in that arena. But no, I, I it was wonderful to see. And he, and he, he does seem like such a, such a good guy. Let's move on from rugby and, um, and the, the, the almost comical inevitability of the British skiing association going downhill and let's move on to, <laughs> and let's move on to uh, let's move on to what one would have to say is the big story this week, and that's the the doping scandal in in cycling. Giles, yeah, you know, just talk a little bit about that because to say you you were in that world with with a view to
2: trying to embrace it, what, what how did you see that story unfold this week? I'm really sad by by this story. Um, I was um, involved in as far as my time at HSBC. Um, around that time, um, the, the suggestions that there were, were issues with with the medical um, appropriation of, of, of various drugs, et cetera, et cetera. And there were always rumours, which were, of course, shut down by the governing body. And HSBC at the time went forward and, and, and sponsored, um, for all the right reasons, what they called a societal partnership, very much engaging people in Britain on the move and, and clearly no better way than cycling to be on the move. And at the, at the back of one's mind, particularly with the very fierce journalists that we are privileged to have in the UK, thank God, um, there are times when our journalists are, are fierce, but my God, they'll get a story. There were still these rumours, um, which the governing body were at pains to distance themselves from. But extensively over the trial, it's, it's shown that there were issues, there were very major issues and the sports governance was not in control of itself and maybe the behavior of some of the, of the individuals. And it, it is a massive scandal because this is a governing body that maybe at the executive level didn't know about what was going on. In fact, I'm fairly certain they didn't. And you're there, still going to the market, going to major international brands and sponsors to say, we want partnership, we want government support, we, want, we are clean. And there are still major, major um, holes uh, in the hull um, that weren't plugged. And I suspect it sent a shudder of nervousness right away around both the sport of cycling all over the world, but across all sports, because the governance and the reputation of clean sport is so intrinsic, particularly in the world we live in now, where investors simply cannot be tarnished by this. So This one will run and run for a bit longer and I'm saddened by it, if I'm honest, because in good faith, cycling, like many other sports, espouses so many positive values, not just of competition, of brilliant athletes, of people, men and women doing their their thing, but also in a sport like cycling, like so many others, it very much touches touches the grassroots of of sport and of, of the fabric of society. And that's often why sponsors do get involved um and i hope that this doesn't tarnish things for for british cycling in the short term and indeed for sport in the uk for, for years to come yeah, the, the amazing thing is that that you know cycling you, because you're right it does touch the
0: grassroots charles but also cycling has basically been one long cyclical drug scandal right for decades now it's just been one after the other and i wonder how many more strikes cycling has before people just give up on it altogether. Now, they won't they won't give up on it, but it's very difficult now because this, the spotlight is always going to be on cycling. Anybody who, who dominates the sport is going to have a very hard time to do that without an asterisk against their name, even if it's just in the public perception. And unfortunately, it seems as though every time those perceptions are cast, ultimately, after a lot of Sturm and Drang and lawsuits and God knows what they turn out to be correct. And I just wonder at what point in time people just either say, I'm done with cycling, or say, you know what, fill yourself full of whatever you want. I mean, there's no point in
2: trying to hide it. Just drug yourselves up and, and pedal as fast as you can. Well, and don't you think that the, the vanity and arrogance of sport, which is sometimes what makes sport so alluring, can also be its downfall. And I, I'm, always, I'm always reminded of Daedalus and Icarus, when I think of the, that, the, the story of cycling, where particularly... Two fine Kiwi batsmen, if ever i heard of. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's no answer to that. Marvellous shot, that. And um, <laughs> it, it, just the sense of the knowledge that it was almost too... It was too attractive to keep trying to fly for the sun, knowing that the wax would melt it and down came Icarus, despite what Daedalus, his father, said... And there's something about some sports is you know that it's going to go wrong no matter what. And it feels that you're right. Cycling throughout the sport, maybe because of what Sir David, I use the term advisedly, Sir David Brailsford um, talked about marginal gains. Those marginal gains were so valuable at what cost and at what yep. cost. And, and that that is probably why we love sport. It's, it's why it's flawed. It's why it's... It's just a, just a microcosm of, of human but, but, existence. But,
0: but, you know, Giles, what's interesting is right the way through this podcast, the, the if we had to pick one overarching theme, it has been exactly that, that sport is becoming ever more a business, um, necessarily so in, in this day and age. And so the more it becomes a business, the more valuable those incremental gains become and the more temptation there is going to be to use anything you can to get an advantage. You're
2: right. And we had, uh, on one of our earlier shows this year, we had Daniel Heal of Control Risks. What they're busiest about in the sports industry is about reputational risk. These are the guys who are dealing with risk across all of the major sectors, from oil and gas, from insurance, from banking. And yet where they're busiest is trying to keep the nose of sport clean by the kind of reputational risk management that they do. And it keeps on demonstrating there are lots of dirty noses and it seems to be ever thus. I think for, for our,
0: for our just, just not to harp on them, but for our Kiwi listeners, Charles was talking about reputational rusk there, <laughs> just to make sure that you understood what you talking So, Rod, you were going to come in.
1: No, um, you know, I, I'd, I'd tell a, a little story about this this um,
0: British cycling,
1: you know, back in your,
0: back in your doping days, (laughs) back in my doping days, when you were juicing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, 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 actually um, I live in Italy, which is one of the countries that is historically a a cycling nation and having had exposure to people that every Saturday and Sunday get the Lycra on and and, and do a lot of kilometers riding in, in groups of 20 to the chagrin of anybody driving around those roads. Um, You know, you'd hear all kinds of stories from the flipping of, you know, the Coca Cola and aspirin, to the people that were a little bit more aggressive. In such a way, like as you say, Grant, it was taken as whatever you want to do. You know, that's the way it is in cycling. So fast forward, fast forward to the Olympics in London, 2012, where United Kingdom, not just in cycling, but everywhere everywhere did exceptionally well, didn't they? Well, I'm sitting here in Italy and I I can tell you what I got. You guys have got really good at hiding it, haven't you? Mm -hmm. I said, how dare you? How dare you? What we have got is a program of finding the elite earlier on, taking them away to specialist camps and working out that famous phrase, the marginal gains. We've got really good at that. How dare you say that we've just juiced up because it's our home Olympics? What do you think they're saying to me now? You know? because Well, thank God for lockdown, Rog, because I yeah, can't say anything to you. <laughs> yeah, because it's not, just, it's not just fucking Freeman, is it? That's the point. It's not Freeman, just Freeman. What about Salazar and UK Athletics? Yeah? yeah. And, and how many medals did we win on that track in London 2012 with athletes very, very closely linked to Salazar? You know, and, and then we, we, we tried to say to people on this podcast that this is much more common than people are comfortable discussing. You know, we did the thing with Duncan Castles where we talked about Fuentes and how wide that went and how it was shut down when it was creeping closer to the Spanish sporting heroes in both tennis and in their football clubs in those days. The bottom line is that this is really, really prevalent. And, you know, I'm a bit like you, Grant. I can start, and this is maybe a reflection of where you get to in life. I can start by saying, you're, 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 you're doping, you're, 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 you're doing something, and uh, I'll see if you're innocent. You know, I, I don't start the other way around. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I read this, and, and I'm thinking the tragedy of this, Let's assume Froome, Wiggins, Hoy, puts her name Pemberton, and the others are innocent. Let's assume they did nothing. Those medals are all tainted now. I would be absolutely furious. I think I would go and doorstep that guy Freeman if I was innocent. I would be looking for
2: him at night. Well, you know, and and this is one of the things that we talk about. In sport, there is a dichotomy that sport has, and it's, you're right, Grant. It's partly about the money that's coming in, but you think the sort of the moral indignation if you accuse anybody of cheating in any form is colossal, yeah. and you only have to look at the Australian cricket team of recent years. The indignation from the nation when cheating was supposed to have happened, but beforehand, how it was denied. Same with Lance Armstrong, denied, is people always put up a very strong, how dare you insinuate that I could have cheated, that we could have cheated, that they could have cheated. And yet time after time, everywhere you look in sport, there are examples because of the money, because of the pressure to win, which is those marginal gains. How can we bend a rule? How can we juice up or whatever it may be? in order to, to extract performance, and we can't get away from it. And it's sport's Achilles heel. I know we're going very classical this week, but it is the Achilles heel, the sport, <laughs> because um, the dichotomy is so strong. We want, in a sense, to have the Corinthian play up, play well, play hard, and have a nice glass of beer afterwards, chaps, and well played the winning captain. But actually, in reality, is it's win at all costs. Yep, that's the way it is. Well, uh, we're talking of win at
0: all costs. Um, Formula One, as you said, Giles, is is coming back, and the cost of winning in Formula One is probably the highest in the world. So when you when you throw a line out like win at all costs in Formula One, you're writing a, a very, very big check. Rog, um, obviously the Formula One, uh, the drive to, we've got the new Drive to Survive series coming out on Netflix in, uh, what, another week or so? Or two weeks? Yep. I'm not sure when it comes out. Yep. It's, it's one week, It's before think. the end of this month. Um, what, what do you see ahead for this new Formula One season?
1: Well, we... we- I'm very bullish about Formula 1 as you know. Uh there's a couple of things that are are are, are driving uh what I think is an excellent time coming. Um first of all the new chief executive uh Ali, that that uh, used to run Ferrari and then I think he went on to run um Lamborghini or something like that. Serious serious guy. Uh, I I think that was probably needed. Uh, secondly, you've got the the plan to be more green more sustainable more uh, environment friendly um i think they've done well to address that and you can see uh, the results of that you start getting people like porsche you know part of the the vw group saying well if you're going to a more sustainable future in fuels then we're all up for that of course why wouldn't you be it's wonderful marketing and 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 I think that is uh, super exciting if you get Porsche back into Formula One and others maybe follow. We've got Aston Martin back this year. Um, hello to Jeff Slack who's taking up that CEO role. You've got the budget restrictions that aren't aren't kicking in fully yet, but but the, the teams are gearing to 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 to, to deal with that. Um, I, I I think you know they've got seems to be getting younger and younger all the time with the drivers. Um, Gels and I have got some some good contacts in Formula One. We've got uh, Matt Strachan at AlphaTauri, and and we've got Tim Tim Hunt at, at Williams. Um, we've talked about Williams a lot. I think they're going to do very well this year. Uh, and of course, the most important thing is that we've decided to do an Are You Not Entertained fantasy league for Formula One because. Um, that is, I, I saw how it's worked for for us in, in the English Premiership in terms of engagement and interest. And uh, let's see if we can do something the same in Formula One. It's not the same, really, because the drivers don't change as much. Uh, you've not gotten a lot of choices to make and everything like that. But just having people talk about the sport, I think we're going to see a wonderful season this year for everything new
2: in Formula One. Well, it feels also like that all of the all of the stars have aligned. You've got new money, you know, new management, new uh, new executives, but also some of the teams, new investors, and fresh thinking. Formula One for a long time didn't have fresh thinking. It, it relied on its strength and its history, which made it very powerful, one of the truly global. Um, uh, circuses, if you like, what you've got now is that global circus, maybe the time when we're all pining for a global circus, because it's everything switched off for a while, with really smart new thinkers. And it's for me, I've never really been a Formula One person, but seeing some of the innovations on track, as well as some of the fantastic uh, behind the scenes um netflix documentaries and all of those kind of things that you reference for me is this is a sport that's back in the ascendancy and really yep. really going for it and i of course that becomes very addictive and it becomes it it, it becomes something that, that that cycle really starts to turn and you're looking in yeah it, this is a sport that's uh coming back This i mean this the the, the rise of or, or the
0: Resurrection, let's call it, of uh, Formula One really has been the perfect showcase for everything Roger's been talking about for the last two or three years. Which it, it, I, I say that through gritted teeth, having to give him this much praise, but he—it <laughs> it really has tied together so many of your threads, Rog, in terms of the importance of creative storytelling, the importance of narrative, the importance of you know engagement with the fans, whether it be in, in short clips or whether it be through you know. At a season of hour-long documentaries, each part of which becomes snackable in its in its own way. Right, you can just watch one episode, or, or you can work your way through the series. I mean, it to me, Formula One has become the model for any sport that wants to embrace you know this new world that Roger's been describing. Formula One, I think, has shown everybody the way to do it.
1: Yeah, they've also got their their, their media channel that um, I think has had its initial problems. It has to uh, work through existing long-term TV contracts that maybe hamper it a little bit. But I keep coming back to to one of the things I saw three years ago in a conference. It was a conference that was run by InCrowd, um, Aiden Cooney's company. And one of the speakers was from Formula One. And they showed in a wonderful presentation how they segmented uh, the Formula One fans into passion and uh, purists, casual uh, wives of the passion. It, it, they had about seven or eight categories and they showed how they marketed to each of them differently and how they distributed that message to each of them in different platforms. And it just blew me away, you know? So if it's right, what you're saying that, you know, I, I, I have been talking about these things. It's because a lot of it is, is, is down to formula one and, I think they're going to have a very, very interesting year. One of the, their big problem is the dominance of Mercedes and and
0: and Lewis Hamilton. Well, this, I mean, this was this was some, a point I was going to raise, Roger. Is that you know when you when you look at the success of Formula One in the last couple of years, based around this this very very well executed media strategy, they've got arguably the hardest job of any sport, right? Because all the all the the glitz, the glamour, the sex appeal of the sport. Really comes from the locations and the machinery. You've got two, maybe three people that win every race, right? You've got very little competition. You've got very little excitement in in the true sense of the old Formula One there, where it was, you know, seat of the pants, and you might get a fireball of a crash every week, and it was it was real life and death stuff. Now you have, as I say, a handful of guys that that split the wins up between them. Uh, you have all your star players shrouded in helmets and in cars. And when you think about what Formula One has done, if you think about that as a roadmap for other sports where you have a team uh, of people who are doing individual things on a pitch in full view, different teams win every week, you can have upsets every week. You know, the, the road ahead should be, I think, for anyone embracing this Formula One model, incredibly bright in terms of embracing this, this yep. narrative-driven world. Or,
1: or in other words, if they get competitive balance uh, between the 10 teams, what are they going to do? Because it's already yeah. pretty interesting.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, this is another reason why the, the, the number of NBA and Major League Baseball players selling products is dwarfs that, I think, of NFL players, simply because when they're on the field, they're all, they all look the same with their helmets on. You can see the numbers on their backs, yeah. we said that and you can see the plays yeah. of the superstars, but well, before we close, yes, one more thing that I think it would be I've got one more not... as well, Grant. I've got... Uh... Well, can you do that? Because well, the thing I want to touch upon is, is fitting for a, an epitaph. We're going yeah. Up. Yeah, sorry. I, I can, I guess, where
1: well, you're going with that. But um, we don't rehearse these things. So, so sorry. Uh, my, my last story is a little bit about what we're all living these days, which is uh, politics and governments uh, and trying to say that they're not as bad as we all think they are and everything like that. And... When you're when you get into that world, you, 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 the the phrase that comes quite soon after is sport washing. So what caught my I this week was uh, Boris Johnson do um, two things, um, kind of like half half offering to host the whole of the Euros in the UK as opposed to the kind of like travelling circus that yeah. has been planned, and and his hand is probably getting stronger because of our vaccine rollout and everything like that. That probably won't happen. I think that's more to do with the fact that a lot of people don't want to see Britain prosper these days, but that's that's a political podcast. Um
0: most of at least of all the Scots, but carry on.
1: <laughs> well, we are we are we are in Britain still, yeah. And and, and I'm I'm British before I'm Scottish. Um the, the other one is John is Johnson, Boris Johnson, uh, threw out there that he would throw some money at a 2030 World Cup bid for the UK and Ireland. Wasn't massively reported, but that's really good PR. You know, I, see, I think it was 3 million you put towards that. as peanuts, obviously. But, you know, together with the offer of the Euros uh, and other things that are happening, I, I think that is really good PR. And I'll link it uh, to something I saw really in the margins this week around this whole world of FIFA, which is uh, Franz Beckenbauer. Uh, obviously, was uh, on trial for his role in securing. I think it was the two thousand and six. Six. World... Yeah. Yeah. He, he he was in trouble there. He was, um, and he was saved by the statute of limitations of ten years. They didn't finish the trial in time, mainly because every time he was meant to appear, he claimed ill health. Um, and the thing I read was quite cutting, and it said that he had been whilst in ill health, doing a whole lot of various things that they listed. The the, the amazing thing is that um, the statute of limitations, guess when it was introduced by FIFA as a rule? Guess what year?
0: Uh, l- 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 let me guess. It would be uh, the day after they raided uh, Sepp Blatter's office.
1: No, it's actually later <laughs> than that. 2018. Oh, okay. 2018. So, oh, okay. like, you know, uh, listen, I'm going to get convicted here. Um, we need a statute of limitations. You, no, way, no, no way you could kind of get that passed kind of quickish. Yeah, no problem, France. Let's do that. He walks scot-free. 2006 case closed.
0: Interesting. I hadn't seen that edge of it. That, that, that is very interesting, Rog. Well, look, as I said, there's, there's one more thing I'd love to talk to you, you gents about before we close, and that is the, 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 the sad passing this week of marvellous Marvin Hagler. Um, oh, yes. Oh, yes. And, you know, w- when I saw that, he, he's 66 years old, which is which is no age to go. Um, at least all because the three of us are pushing that. We'll be yeah. there fairly shortly. But, you know, it, it was so good to see all the YouTube links going around on, on Twitter and stuff of that era of middleweight boxing. Sugar Ray Leonard, Hearns, Hagler, Duran, and even Minter and Simpson in the U.K., what an unbelievable decade of boxing that was, and that that hagler hearns fight. And anybody listening to this who hasn't seen this yet, go on YouTube. I, I think it's been pretty much unanimously voted the single greatest fight, certainly of the last century. And the, I think the opening round is supposed to be the greatest round ever fought. It was just an absolute war, and, and it was it was it was sad, but just wonderful to relive those times because that was when I really. Was into boxing that the the eighties the middleweights were just everybody was just unbelievable to watch. Yeah, it, it was it was incredibly sad, but as I said, the, the legacies live on. And and watching that footage again, Rog was just absolutely phenomenal this week.
1: Well, yeah, it, it was our generation, wasn't it? We were all becoming young men uh, in those years, and I remember very clearly uh, the boxing was covered quite a lot on terrestrial TV uh, in the UK, and we got you know the Minter the the Finnegan brothers, uh, there was a whole lot of British boxers that you knew very, very well. And then one day, one of them, Alan Minter, fought this guy that we didn't know, who was called Marvin Hagler. And that, for me, not the Hearns fight, that, for me, is the most brutal thing I've ever seen. You know, I've never before or after seen a boxer clasp the their eye after just being whacked The way Alan Minter was whacked as the blood streamed down and and then that fight uh, was stopped and then all the bottles flew in and made it quite an ugly evening. But, you know, Marvin Hagler, you know, I, I think he's treated quite badly by the historians and the people that love boxing because in my mind, I never saw him lose. I, I I don't think the the split the, the decision that, that, that Leonard got against the him Leonard yeah was yeah. right. I, I, so I've never seen him lose. I've never seen him in difficulty. I've never seen him taking a beaten, and I've certainly never seen him on the deck. His only defeat, I think, to Vito Antofermo, and I remember Antofermo, that that's because, right, yeah. because he had an Italian name. I Always remember and Vito like Corleone. That name always stuck in my brain. Still does. That he was robbed of that as well, and then you know. He loses to Leonard. They all want to get on the rematch, the rematch thing. And he just says, look, you know, you stole it from me once. You'll probably do it again. I'm out. And if I'm not mistaken, he goes to Italy to leave a completely different life. I think he was an actor or something like that. Just seems like a guy that was as authentic as the day is long.
2: Well, it's really interesting you say that. So, as you know, I had uh, England, former England prop Jason Leonard, who grew up in the in the East End on the captain's table a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, great and sure. he grew, he grew up in a in a boxing family. An unfortunate choice of phrase, jars. <laughs> but carry on. <laughs> uh, you know, I specialise in them. <laughs> and uh, when I was asking him, for those who haven't heard the show, he he talks about Hagler and that this at that heyday for the boxing purist those days were as good as boxing could ever be and I, I understand that a lot of the rocky films they were using those as the kind of guidance of the yeah. kind of entertainment that are, that are, obviously that was heavyweight but it wasn't really it was based on that on that division amazing and and i it's amazing as we start to lose sports people and we look back there's some footage isn't there that we look back in that just um, transcends time. You talk about it does. Hagler-Hearns, you talk about Franz Klammer going down um, the and on kind of on one ski and one leg, but hanging in there of Gareth Edwards' tries, of both of them smacking sixes. There are some things that even with grainy footage, even with, with advancement in all sorts of things, it's still visceral and perfect. And, and, and Hagler would be right up the top of that list.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. And Roger, you know, your, your, your point, I, I absolutely agree with. I think I think Leonard was the star of that era because of all the stuff outside the ring, because of his personality and his, his eloquence and his style and his flash and all that stuff, right? He was the style, but Hagler was the substance. And, and it's interesting to see this week, a lot of the stuff I've read has been uh, acknowledging of that, and and talking about how he was underrated, and he didn't receive at the time, he didn't his due because you know it, it, because he, he wasn't he wasn't Sugar Ray Leonard. That's just the way of it, right? But he was a he was an unbelievable boxer, and 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 one of the key figures in in, in what for me was the golden age of boxing, no doubt well at all. Well said, well said. Well, gents, uh, look, I guess our, our lunch hour is almost up. Giles, as always, hogged the whole penguin himself. Didn't bother sharing that around, I noticed, even despite his new fancy lunchbox. Well, I've got some mon-
2: I've got some Monster Munch if you both want it. Well, I, 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 Why are, they, are they, are they pickled, onion, pickled onion or roast beef? Pickled onion. No, you can keep those then.
0: I guess all that's left is, is to thank everybody for listening, uh, to thank you out there. Please, if you wouldn't mind, take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. It really does help. If you'd leave us a, a little i mean the number of stars is entirely up to you but i you know I, I think five is better than one that's all i'll say uh, leave us a review it takes a couple of minutes and really helps you can follow us on twitter uh, if you're not doing so already you'll find us at entertained r that's the word a-r-e you'll find me at
2: t-t-m-y-g-h you'll find me giles morgan at giles morgan 71
0: and you'll find myself at rpm como as in the lake as in the lake Gentlemen, I guess I best we I uh, best we get it back to work. Uh, as always, it's been a, a, a joy and a pleasure. Uh, I will uh, see you out here in the middle next time. Perfect.